from the scriptures that we'll be looking at this morning. I invite you, if you'd like, to turn in your pew Bibles to page number 1060, the Gospel of John, where we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 35 through 58. The words will be on the screen, but in many ways, once again, I'd encourage you actually to pull out your pew Bibles and follow along as we'll be referencing back to several of these verses. Again, it's on page 1060 from John chapter 6, verses 35 through 58. I'll give the context of this text in my message, but we pick up in verse 35 where Jesus says to a crowd that is gathered around them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews, gr the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, 
not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the end of October, we commemorated Reformation Sunday, and ever since then, we as a congregation in our morning worship service have been walking through the doctrines taught in the canons of Dort, those five doctrines that have been summarized uh, for us in that word TULIP, a helpful acronym to think through what those teachings are. So far, we've looked at the T, total depravity, and then we looked at the U, unconditional election. Last week, we looked at the L, limited atonement, and this morning we are up to the I, which stands for irresistible grace, leaving P for next week. Now, to introduce these things, uh, or, or what that I doctrine of irresistible grace means, let me make a little bit of a confession to you. Uh, while TULIP is extremely helpful in many ways to remember and to order those uh, doctrines, the reality is, first of all, that sometimes those summary statements aren't very helpful and can even introduce some misunderstandings of what those doctrines actually teach. And furthermore, when you actually look at the canons of Dort, they don't go in that order of tulip. They actually go in the order of altip. And I highlight that because when we get to this point, the third and the fourth, the T and the I points of doctrine are addressed together. In its entirety, the canons of Dort focus on that question, that issue, how are we saved? How does the work of Christ get applied to our lives? And when we get, as Christians, we all believe that we are saved by the actions and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His body and shed blood are the means of our salvation, granted to us by grace through faith. But when addressing this part of the doctrine, the main question before us that ends up dividing Arminian from Reformed Christians is this. To what extent do we have to cooperate with or uh, participate or add to the work of Christ in order to be saved? A more Arminian view would suggest that, yes, Jesus died for us, therefore making it possible for us to be saved. But, in essence, we have to finish the work of Jesus. We have to complement what he did for us on the cross by bringing to that action our faith. And so he did what he needed to do, making it possible, but now we have to finish that work by bringing our faith, our work, or our efforts in order to actually complete that work of salvation and be saved. That's the Arminian view. The Reformers, as you might guess by what we've already talked about, would disagree because as we already have seen, we are totally depraved, 
We are completely tainted by sin, and therefore there is nothing in us that would ever even look for God if he did not first do a work in our lives. The third point of the doctrines of election. However, when God, through his Holy Spirit, does transform us and reveal himself to us, not only is that seen as his work in us, but when he does work in us, we can be confident that he will bring that work to completion and truly save us. As Pastor Brent has said several times in the messages he's preached on these doctrines, Jesus didn't just make salvation possible, he saved us completely. That, in short, is the teaching of irresistible grace. God gets all the credit, even for drawing us to Christ through his Holy Spirit, and when he does that work, he will save to the uttermost. Now, with all of these doctrines, we recognize that there are struggles and questions that people immediately have in all of that. Based on that, some imagine that on the entrance to heaven, there's these gates and there's two different lines. And in the one line, there are those that have done everything against God. They're kicking and they're screaming. They say, no, 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 I want nothing to do with you. And God's saying, nevertheless, I've chose you. Come on in. And standing right next to them is another line of people, desperate to get into heaven, wanting a relationship with him. But God says, nope, you're not allowed in because I haven't chosen you. So I'm sorry. Or if they're a little bit more open, they might say something like, all right, I've been following along in all of these teachings and I can recognize that there is a certain logic a certain philosophy that, that binds them all together, that it makes sense that if you believe this, then you must also believe that. And there's some logical uh, continuity to all of these thoughts. But we don't do theology by logical continuity and, and philosophy. We understand these things by Scripture. And we shouldn't pick just some random texts from Paul's writings to set this foundation on something so very important. Well, I would agree, which is why for this morning I wanted to go through this text from John 6 and see what Jesus himself has to say about his work of salvation and how it happens. Again, as I said, I'll get the context for John chapter 6. It, it starts with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And after these 5,000 people are fed, uh, the next day Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, having walked uh, quite a bit of the way on the water. And the crowds have gone to the other side looking for him. But we find out pretty quickly that the reason why they are looking for him is they want more free food. They just ate a little bit. It was pretty incredible. And now if we follow this guy, maybe we don't have to buy groceries. And he can just keep giving us food, showing more and more signs. Well, despite what had just taken place, they do challenge Jesus. And they say, we want another sign. We want more evidence that you are who you say you are before we are going to believe. 
And where we picked up and started reading in verse 37, Jesus is challenging this mentality and he's stating to them that instead of looking for free food that will feed their bodies for a limited amount of time, they really should be looking for him. He who is the bread that will feed them for eternal life. And that's when he brings in his first I am statement in the book of John, something that will be repeated several times when he claims, I am the bread of life, not here to feed your bodies temporarily, but to feed your very souls for eternity. And in that statement, he says things like he does in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Or also in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus is the way to eternal life. And in those statements, it almost sounds like that Arminian view that when we bring our faith, our belief to Jesus, then we will be received. But here's the problem in the text. The people have seen so much of who Jesus was. They have been fed miraculously. They've had the opportunity to hear him preach and to teach about who God is and about who he was. They have seen the miracles of him healing people from uncurable diseases. And yet, it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more signs. They wanted more proof. How could they, who had seen so much, still not believe? And that's where, in the context, Jesus explains. He explains that people can't come to him unless the Father calls them to Jesus and helps them to see Jesus for who he is. This is what's being talked about in verses 37 and through 39, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And here we see Jesus teaching our doctrine. Those that are saved, who have faith, are those that God, through his Spirit, has revealed the truth to their hearts. And when that truth is revealed, Jesus isn't worried that he's going to try really hard to do what the Father has asked of him, but maybe fail. That he's going to do what he needs to do, but might not succeed because others are unable to do what they need to do to actually finish the work. No. Instead, he assures them that he will succeed in doing the will of the Father and all that the Father has given to him will be saved. And if that isn't clear enough, the doctrine is really laid out in verse 44. And we're going to walk through that verse a little bit more slowly and in detail. The verse starts with the bad news. No one can come to me. Again, this is why the canons of Dort link total depravity with irresistible grace. This is the total depravity part. Nobody 
in their own strength, in their own goodness, in their own wisdom and knowledge, in their own abilities and accomplishments can ever approach God in their own. We are totally depraved. There is no line of people that desperately want to get into heaven with God, but are incapable because as sinners that are totally depraved, we don't look for God unless he acts on us first. And that's where the verse continues with that incredible word of hope, unless. There is a way to come to Jesus. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's the only possibility for how anyone is able to come to Jesus. They come when the Father draws them to him. And that word draw, by the way, to be very clear, is not just an invitation Hey, I've got something going on. If you're available, why don't you come and join me? It's up to you to decide. No, it is, it is the same word used in Acts 21.30 to describe when Paul is dragged out of the temple courts and sent to prison. It is maybe better translated compelled, unless the Father compels them to come to me. It is only through the drawing of the Father that is makes possible for us to come to Jesus. But here's the good news of irresistible grace. That when God does the work of saving someone by grace, he completes that work. Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come unless the Father draws. And when the Father draws, I will raise them up. On the last day. We'll elaborate on that last thought a little bit more next week when we look at the P, perseverance of the saints. But even in this brief review, it is clear that yes, to be saved, you have to believe. And whoever believes will be saved. However, the source of even that belief cannot be credited to our own selves. Once again, we see that God alone gets all of the credit and therefore all of the glory of every part of work of grace in our lives. Now admittedly, because of all of the things were going on, and I knew Phil would take forever, <laughs> that was a very brief explanation of the text and a brief explanation of the doctrine. But the question now we need to ask is, well, what do we do with that? How do we apply that? And it's important, especially for this, this doctrine, because in some ways you can look at everything I just said and, and suggest that, well, the application means don't do anything. Don't do anything because we can't do anything. If it's up to God, then does that mean that everything we do in this life is utterly irrelevant? And therefore, whatever we do, whether we worship, whether we come to church, whether we fight against temptation, whether we even receive the gospel, it's up to God. And so why do anything? To be abundantly clear, that is not the application for this message. And again, we get that from the text. Right after we re where we stopped reading in verse 58, we found that many people really struggle with what Jesus is saying, especially this stuff about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. It's too hard of a teaching for many who had previously called themselves disciples of Jesus, and so they walk away. 
And Jesus knew that they would walk away. And yet, that didn't mean that Jesus did nothing for them. Again, he still fed them. He still preached to them. He still called them. He still challenged them to receive the good news that was being offered. Yes, God has predestined and chosen the elect and saved them through Christ. But in time, we still are called to respond, to express faith, faith, and to live for Christ as we preach, teach, and call others to respond to that grace as well. God still uses means, the means of church, of preaching, of interactions, in order to convey his grace to us. It's just that when people do respond, we recognize again that is a gift of God and we celebrate his work in our unworthy lives. And that's the call of this passage. It is to remember again that we are totally fallen. That we deserve, have earned, and can approach, ask nothing from the God that we all have rebelled against and rejected. But nevertheless, in his grace, he has offered that love, that hope to us, and we have received it. And that's why John, the author of this gospel, will later celebrate in 1 John 3, 1, verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And that leads to the rest of what we're going to do this morning. Because today, one... Delia Vandermulen has come to the point that she has recognized and is ready to receive the gift of God's grace given to her. And yes, God used the teachings of this church, the events of her life, the fantastic parents that she's had, <laughs> in order to encourage her to get to this point. And by the way, this is where you truly recognize it is not because of the parents or the church, but it all is all because of the grace of God that has led her to that point. And in being led to that point, she's going to stand and say, yes, I understand what God has done for me. And in recognizing that, I want to live for him and praise him all of my days. And then together with her, we will approach this table Saying again that it's nothing we bring to this table. To add to the work of Jesus as though it was insufficient in and of itself. But because Jesus, the very son of God, gave his body and his blood to us. He invites us in that completed work to remember that sacrifice. And then to live as his children called such by his grace. With that joy in our hearts, let's approach him in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we often pursue you for selfish desires, for community, for friends, and fellowship. But we let us recognize in you that you are what we need. You are the bread of life. 
And so as we hear these words, and as we are by your grace given the opportunity to taste and to smell the remembrance, uh, the, the memorial in this feast of communion, may it be a wonderful reminder of what you have done for us. Lord, that is not our deserving. And so we approach entirely in gratitude. May we remember what you have done and in remembering go and live for you in all that we are. Thank you for being the bread of life that we need and assuring us that as we eat, we will be saved. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.